Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 16 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is the first in a three-part series reviewing the ongoing Special Counsel's Russia investigation. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. This is the first of three episodes on the Russia investigation. In today's episode, I plan to review the investigation from a prosecutor's perspective, highlighting tactics and strategy. I have no political axe to grind here, but want to review the investigation and likely course of action. In part two, I will review the Michael Flynn plea agreement. And in part three, I will review the overall picture and likely next steps. From my perspective, the investigation appears to be focused on two separate issues. One, the relationship between Russian officials and the Trump campaign and the transition, and two, the possible obstruction of justice in the handling of the Russia investigation. In focusing on the relationship between Russian officials and Trump campaign officials, the special counsel's office is seeking evidence showing coordination where Russian officials actually assisted the Trump campaign, either through financing, in-kind contributions, or other forms of assistance. The investigation is examining whether such assistance might have been provided in exchange for changes in U.S. foreign policy towards Russia, including relaxing or lifting the sanctions program or the Magnitsky Act sanctions. There appear to be several discrete areas being investigated, including one, exchange of or access to sensitive information about Hillary Clinton, including emails and potential dirt for changes in for changes in the sanctions program, and two, data and online promotion and information in exchange for financial and or other benefits, such as sanctions changes. There may have been other areas where potential collaboration could have occurred. At the outset, it's clear that the special counsel's investigation has proceeded like any other long-term investigation against a criminal enterprise, such as organized crime, drug trafficking organizations, white-collar fraud organizations like the Enron case. The Justice Department does not conduct many of these types of investigations in the white-collar area these days, since the traditional model for such investigation has been replaced by the outsourcing of internal investigations to companies and business organizations. What we are seeing right now is the old style of criminal investigations, which I was trained on, to be candid, based on building a large criminal case by focusing on lower-level individuals, building criminal cases against each of them to gain leverage, and then hopefully flipping them to cooperate in a broader investigation. As one source close to the Trump administration told the Washington Post, Mueller's investigation is a classic Gambino-style roll-up. In taking this approach, prosecutors use proactive and historical evidence to target lower-level individuals, gain their cooperation testimony, and possible proactive assistance, and then target higher-level officials in order to gain their cooperation. So far, from what we can tell, the special counsel has been gathering evidence from a variety of sources, including, one, FISA wiretaps. Those are called Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act wiretaps, 
We know that FISA warrants were obtained for surveillance on Paul Manafort in 2016, at some point after he left the Trump campaign. Additionally, a previous FISA warrant had been issued on Manafort in 2014, although that has lapsed or did lapse prior to his joining to the Trump campaign. FISA wiretap information can be used in criminal investigations. Years ago, the Patriot Act removed what was seen as artificial barriers between sharing of information between intelligence investigations and criminal investigations. A second source, consensual recordings of conversations between cooperating witnesses and subjects of the investigation. That may have occurred in particular with regard to the Papadopoulos plea and cooperation arrangement. Three, execution of search warrants for documents and other evidence of criminal activity, such as the 6 a.m. no-knock warrant on Manafort's residence that was conducted in July of 2016. Four, review of documents and emails generated by individuals involved in the campaign, the transition, and post-inauguration activities. Five, subpoenas for records from financial institutions, including foreign financial institutions such as Deutsche Bank and banks in Cyprus. Six, interviews of investigation subjects, which have currently been going on. And seven, cooperating witness interviews, which have clearly been going on. Let me take a moment to comment on one of the search warrants executed on Mr. Manafort's residence, which was a no-knock warrant executed at his residence at 6 a.m., There is nothing unusual about obtaining a search warrant and executing it at dawn around 6 a.m. Both the 6 a.m. execution and the no-knock authorization, however, had to be supported by information included in the affidavit in support of the application for a search warrant. In particular, to secure the no-knock authority, the government had to demonstrate to the magistrate judge who reviewed the application that there was a real risk that Manafort would destroy evidence and had done so in the past to frustrate the ongoing investigation. Going back to the special counsel's investigation, you can see that that his investigation and his preliminary efforts have definitely borne some significant results. Let's talk first, and the focus of this episode is on the Manafort-Gates indictment. The indictment of Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, and Rick Gates, Manafort's former business partner, on 12 counts, including conspiracy against the U.S., money laundering conspiracy, four counts against Manafort, and three counts against Gates for failure to file tax notifications, one count for acting as an unregistered foreign agent, and one count of making false and misleading statements in, the, in respect to the filings with regard to the Foreign Agent Registration Act, or FARA. The time period for the conspiracy is generally 2006 to 2016, although with regard to specific charges, it uh, sometimes varies. Manafort and Gates are political consultants and lobbyists. According to the indictment, Manafort and Gates first began working in the Ukraine in 2006 and in doing so acted as as unregistered agents of the Ukraine government, the Party of Regions, headed by Viktor Yankovych, former president of Ukraine from 2010 to 2014, and the opposition bloc created when Yankovych fled to Russia. 
Manafort and Gates are alleged to have generated tens of millions in income from their work from the year for the Ukraine and hid the money from U.S. authorities, laundered the money through a number of foreign corporations, partnerships, and bank accounts in various countries, including Cyprus, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, and the Seychelles. Manafort and Gates directed a campaign to lobby U.S. officials on behalf of Ukraine and its political parties and leaders. They employed two lobbying firms to assist them in Washington, D.C., one of which is Tony Podesta's lobbying firm. The other is Mercury LLC. They are referred to as companies A and B in the Manafort-Gates indictment. Tony Podesta is the brother of John Podesta, the longtime Clinton uh, aide and campaign manager. Anyways, Manafort and Gates did not register as foreign agents as required under the FARA or the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Manafort arranged for a front company called the European Center for a Modern Ukraine to be the entity that was purportedly hiring the two lobbying groups so that the lobbying companies could claim that they had not been hired by a foreign government and did not need to register under FARA. However, Mueller's investigation found evidence that the parties were well aware of the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, was a, that it was a pretense, and the true client was the Ukrainian government. To complicate this issue even further, Manafort and Gates falsely replied to the government inquiry concerning their representation of Ukraine. These acts or omissions are the basis of the two charges brought under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. As detailed in the indictment, Manafort led a lavish lifestyle, spending millions on luxury goods for himself and his family through wired payments from offshore accounts. Manafort also purchased properties in the U.S. using money from the offshore accounts and then used the property as collateral for loans to gain access to cash in the U.S. without reporting and paying taxes on the income. Manafort, in securing the loans, defrauded the banks when requesting them. Gates used money from the offshore accounts to pay for his personal expenses, including his mortgage, children's tuition, and interior decorating of his Virginia residence. In total, more than $75 million flowed through the offshore accounts. Manafort laundered more than $18 million. Gates used more than $3 million. The special counsel brought these charges to put additional pressure on Manafort and Gates to cooperate in the investigation. They would have preferred if Manafort and Gates had pled guilty and cooperated, but both Manafort and Gates were unwilling to cooperate. The trial is now scheduled for May 2018, and there is nothing, however, that precludes Manafort and Gates from working out a deal prior to the trial or even after conviction. Manafort, however, is unlikely to plead guilty and cooperate prior to his trial. His attorney, Kevin Downing, left his law firm, Miller and Chevalier, because of a potential conflict, and he is just as committed as Manafort appears to be to a trial. Downing will make much more in fees than if Manafort cooperated pre-trial. His departure to create his own, form, uh, his own firm reflects his own commitment to a trial. In other words, Downing's commitment to create his own firm, reflects that he is strongly advising Manafort to go forward with the trial. Based on court proceedings so far, it appears that Manafort's defense will be that this was just a case of paperwork, accident, and forgetting to file a few forms. I'm not sure that that's such a good defense in connection with a case that is built upon strong documents. 
Manafort can always seek to cooperate after his trial, and he may choose to roll the dice. Manafort and Gates face a very uphill battle. The case appears to be well investigated, tightly put together, and the trial will be before a D.C. jury, uh, which is not going to be very sympathetic to Manafort and Gates. The government will find a receptive jury pool, one which is apt to resent the lavish lifestyle of a former Trump-dedicated servant. Gates has also indicated that Mueller's team has told him to expect additional charges to be forthcoming against him, although it is not yet clear what those charges may be. At the same time the indictment against Manafort and Gates was announced, a different judge unsealed a plea agreement with an individual by the name of George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos served as a foreign policy advisor for the Trump campaign, and he pled guilty to one count of making a false statement during an interview with the FBI on January 27, 2017. He was also initially charged with obstruction of justice as a result of his actions following a second interview with the FBI on February 16, 2017. Uh, after which he deleted his Facebook account in an attempt to eliminate evidence of his Facebook communications with Russian nationals. However, the FBI had already obtained those communications through search warrants. The obstruction of justice charge was later dropped as part of a plea deal. Papadopoulos was initially arrested in July of 2017 after landing in the U.S. at Dulles Airport. The following day, an arrest warrant and criminal complaint was filed, charging Papadopoulos with one count of making a false statement to the FBI and one count of obstruction of justice. Although Papadopoulos's false statements to the FBI were made in an interview that took place in Chicago, the charges were issued by the District Court for the District of Columbia. A plea deal was later reached on, on uh, October 4th, but not made public until October 30th. Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to one count of making false statements to the FBI. Although that charge carries a maximum penalty of five years' imprisonment, the plea agreement, the plea offer's estimated sentencing guideline range, was zero months to six months' imprisonment and a fine of between $500 and $9,000. The timing of the release of this plea agreement was intentional and strategic. The special counsel's intent was to demonstrate to others who were being investigated that the special counsel secured the cooperation of a significant witness. Further, the disclosure of the plea agreement would not compromise the ongoing investigation at the time it was unsealed. The plea agreement also suggests that Papadopoulos may have proactively cooperated in the investigation, meaning that he could have recorded meetings with other individuals or recorded telephone calls with other individuals. This could be a significant source of evidence for the government and is a common tactic used in these types of investigations. During the hearing on Papadopoulos's arraignment or plea agreements, the government asked the court for the filings to be cupped under seal, stating that the criminal justice interest being vindicated here is there's a large-scale ongoing investigation of which this case is a small part. Papadopoulos made three significant false statements to the FBI that were the basis of his plea to one count of making false statements to the FBI. First, he described a relationship he had with an overseas professor who had ties to the Russian government officials which occurred before he joined the Trump campaign, when in fact the contacts, uh, the contacts with the overseas professor occurred after he joined the Trump campaign. Uh, 
Papadopoulos stated that the professor told him that Russia had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. In fact, this confirmation with the professor occurred in late April of 2017, nearly two months after Papadopoulos learned he had been an advisor for the Trump campaign. I'm sorry, that occurred in late April of 2016. 20, not 2017, nearly two months after Papadopoulos learned that he had been an advisor for the Trump campaign. Second, Papadopoulos also falsely told the FBI that the overseas professor was just a guy talking up information. He later conceded that the professor had substantial connections to Russian officials and had met with Russian officials before speaking to Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos repeatedly sought to use the professor's connections to arrange a meeting between campaign and Russian government officials, and he communicated with senior Trump campaign officials about the potential for a meeting between Trump and Putin, or between other Trump campaign officials and members of the Russian government. Third, Papadopoulos also falsely told the FBI that he had minor communications with a female Russian national before he joined the campaign, when in fact he met her after joining the campaign, and he believed she had significant connections to Russian nationals, and he sought to use her connections to arrange a meeting between campaign and Russian officials. Papadopoulos had been told and believed that the female Russian national was Putin's niece, but this was not true. In April 2016, the overseas professor introduced Papadopoulos to a Russian with ties to the Russian foreign ministry. Later in a meeting with the overseas professor, the professor told told Papadopoulos that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton and thousands of emails. This conversation occurred weeks before the Democratic National Committee disclosed it was hacked and was approximately a month and a half after Russian-associated hacking groups had obtained the emails of Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta, pursuant to a phishing operation allegedly tied to the Russians. Papadopoulos continued to arrange a meeting and kept campaign officials informed of its efforts. Before and after his meetings with the Russian nationals, Papadopoulos sent emails to the Trump campaign's senior foreign policy advisor, Stephen Miller, updating him on his activities. The overseas professor eventually informed Papadopoulos that the Russian foreign ministry wanted to cooperate with the Trump campaign. He forwarded, Papadopoulos forwarded the message to Corey Lewandowski. The next day, Papadopoulos spoke to Sam Clovis, uh, who was the co-chairman of the Trump campaign. Papadopoulos later emailed Corey Lewandowski and Paul Manafort to keep them informed on his efforts to arrange meetings with Russian officials. Well, that's it for episode one. Join us for episode two, which is on the Michael Flynn plea agreement. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bolkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. 
You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at Volkoff Law. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.